Uh, my name is Casey Johnson. It's a real privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, I've known River City for a long time. Um, I was a church planner in Madison about nine years ago, and uh, we helped financially plant River City many years ago. And this is my first time to being in an actual service, so it's fun to be here. In fact, even some of the chairs you have in your room came from Redeemer City. So enjoy that while you're sitting there and think about our, our church. Uh, I'm the church multiplication director. I know that probably doesn't mean a lot to you. And if you ask, well, what does church multiplication director do? Um, a few weeks ago, I preached at a church and, and somebody asked, like, is there going to be math in the sermon today? There will be no math. Like, what I do is I recruit, train, coach, and care for uh, just church planners who are planting churches, and of course, the Maros uh, oversee our care team, so that's why I get to work with the Maros and be involved with them and love them. You are very blessed with some of the people, and I've known Brandon for years as well, and we're friends. You guys have great pastors and great leaders of this church. In preparation uh, for today, I was going to preach Matthew 28 because Brandon asked if I would preach something about church multiplication or church planning, since that's what I do. And that's what you guys want to do with your residency. And I was preparing Max, uh, Matthew 28 because one of the things that's really struck me, and I love that you guys do a good job of this, is one of the reasons why we don't plant more churches is because we have not done a good job with our churches in the West of making disciples. Like if we have churches that are overflowing with people who look like Jesus and we develop leaders within our churches, then the natural progression is that we plant more churches. So I wanted to bring that back to Matthew 28 and why that was so important for planting churches for making disciples, but as I was preparing the message, I found out that our superintendent was preaching Matthew 28, and we were preaching at a couple of the same churches this summer, so I had to just go back to the same message I preached last, um, which doesn't have anything to do with multiplication of churches, but I think it will still be relevant for where you're at today, and that's um, facing difficult times with faith and faithfulness. Um, I know that we're coming out of the season we've been at, but the last two and a half years have been anything but but comfortable, and uh, I don't even want to bring up some of those words. Let's just forget about them, and we'll just move on from there. But it's been a difficult season for us, from, for Western standards, right? We have pretty comfortable lives, and it was anything but comfortable. So how do we face difficult times with faith and faithfulness? Uh, there's a meme going around on social media. Uh, this is picture of a jar, and there's ants in it. And the saying on it is that you have 100 red ants and 100 black ants that will live in perfect harmony with one another, but if you put them in a jar, shake them up, and dump them on the ground, they will aggressively fight and attack one another. And what they're getting at is, is that that's kind of what our culture is today, that, that we were created in God's image, and we should be able to get along a little better than we do, but for some reason, we just don't. If you spend any time on social media, hopefully you don't spend a lot of time, you'll see that it is just so easy to disagree with others and so easy to fight with others. And we've seen that over the last few years with, with masks and racial tension and, and just social tension and political tension. It's just been all over the place where we just disagree with each other to the point of cutting each other down and fighting about it. Now, this meme was meant like, hey, instead of being mad at each other, let's figure out who's shaking the jar so that we can direct our anger that we have for other people and direct it towards this person who is shaking the jar. And we're not going to do that this morning. That's not the point of the sermon. Uh, the point of the sermon is that we become more like Jesus. And if we become more like Jesus, we don't direct our anger towards the person shaking the jar either. We just figure out how to live in harmony and in peace no matter what situation we're in. 
So living in difficult times with faith and faithfulness. So uh, if you have your Bibles, um, open up to Matthew, or sorry, I'm not preaching Matthew 28, I'm preaching Acts 12. Open up to Acts 12. And this passage starts off with some bad news. And if you've gone through Acts, which you're a church plant, so some point of the life of River City Church, you've gone through Acts, because every church plant does, um, you'll remember that a few chapters back that Stephen was stoned to death. And this is like the first martyr that happens in the Bible. It's, it's a really big deal. But now you have James, uh, who has just been put to death. Look at verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. So this James here, this is James that was one of Jesus' disciples. This is the brother of John, or the sons of Zebedee, or the sons of Thunder, um, which is mentioned in the Gospels as well. And this is one of the three guys that Jesus spent the most time with. Right? Jesus gathers these 12 disciples, and he invests so much time and energy and teaching into these guys. But three guys were kind of special, and he spent the most time raising these guys up. So this is the first one of like the inner circle of Jesus that is martyred here, and James is arrested, and he is put to death by Herod. Now Herod, this guy's a piece of work, and he comes from a, a wonderful family, just uh, delightful. I'm, I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek if you don't know who Herod is, and I'll tell you who he is right now. Um, but Herod's grandfather is Herod the Great, and this is the one who ruled when Jesus was born, and remember that he heard that a king was going to be born, so he like massacres all these kids because he's so fearful of this king being born. That's his grandfather. And then his uncle is the one who was king when uh, Jesus was arrested and went on trial, and he actually had John the Baptist beheaded. And now you have this Herod here who is wreaking havoc on the church, and he kills James, one of the, the key leaders in the church, and this disciple of Jesus. And now he arrests Peter, and has him thrown in jail as well. Look at verse 3. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to the four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So you, you have this Herod who's, who's thinking, all right, I just got a bunch of praise from the people when I arrested James and had him killed. And, and James is, is a big deal, but, but Peter's a much bigger deal. Like if I arrest and have Peter killed and I got praise from the people for James, just think how the crowds and the people are going to love me for this. So he has Peter arrested and, and Peter's thrown in jail and he's in this prison cell and he's guarded by these four squads of soldiers. There's two outside the door of his cell and then there's two that he's He's chained between. So with these sets of guards, like Herod is putting all these precautions in place to make sure that there is no way that Peter is going to be able to get out, right? If there's going to be any kind of rescue plan, and we're going to see that a little bit later on, that there's no rescue plan. The church is in hiding. They're, they're, they're not even thinking about trying to break Peter out. They know how hopeless that is to be able to try to break Peter out. So Peter is in this, this jail cell with, with little hope of being able to get out. And tomorrow he goes on trial, and most likely he's going to be executed. So I just want you to put yourself in Peter's shoes for, for a moment. Just think about that. Like you're in a prison cell, you're chained to guards, you got all these other guards, you're going to go on trial and be executed just like James was. I mean, what's going to save you in this instance? What, what are you doing the night before your execution? 
Like, how are you handling that? Maybe emotionally, physically. I can tell you, like, if that was me sitting between those guards, if somehow I could get those chains up, like, I would just gnaw my fingernails off. Like, they would be gone. When I get anxious, I bite my fingernails. In fact, my wife will see me sometimes. She goes, you're anxious about something, aren't you? I'm like, no, 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 I'm, I'm, good. I'm good, I'm good. She goes, you're, you're biting your fingernails. I'm like, I am? Okay. Apparently, I'm anxious about something. Like, my fingernails would, would be gone. But I tell you, like, even if I couldn't get my, my fingers up to my mouth to, to shoot my fingernails off, I would at least be restless. Right? The guards are asleep next to Peter. If, if I'm sitting there between these guards, these guards aren't sleeping either because I am fidgety and I'm moving all around and, and there's no way these guards are sleeping and there's definitely no way that I'm sleeping here anyway. So, but when you see this, this, this scene happening here in the Bible, Peter is just out like a light, right? He's just he's sleeping. He's resting. In fact, when the angel comes in, it says that it's shown a great light in the cell. And this is using this, this word, great light. This isn't like just flipping on a little light and there's this little halogen hanging up there that, that somehow it light, brightens this room. This is a great light. For the parents of this room, I don't know if you have any kids like that where you walk in in the morning and flip on the light and they wake up. I definitely don't have any of those kids in my house at all. But if you're a light sleeper, like just a little bit of light wakes you up. But this great light shines in the cell and Peter is still out. You know, there's many words in here that Luke could have used to describe how the angel woke him up. And it doesn't say like, it just, angel like little nudged him a little bit and got down in his ears like, shh, shh, we got guards here, Peter. Let's keep this quiet and keep this on the lowdown, but I need you to wake up now. It's a beautiful day. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us happy, be happy and rejoice in it, right? That's not the way that the angel wakes him up here. That's the way my mom woke us up when we were kids. It says the angel had to wake Peter up by striking him. By striking him. The Greek word pataza suggests a strong, even violent blow. And this word is used elsewhere in Scripture to talk about God smiting his enemies. I mean, that's, that's a strong word to use, right, just to get Peter to wake up from the cell. But what is that telling you about where Peter's at right now? I mean, he is, he is out. He is sleeping like a baby. He is resting like he has no cares in the world. The night before he is executed, he rests. So how is that possible? How is that possible to just sleep like you don't have a care in the world? I don't think Luke writes this in here so that we might come to the conclusion that, that Peter was a good sleeper. Right? When you talk about Peter, you talk about how bold he was. He said whatever was on his mind. And you know what? He was a good sleeper too. Remember Acts 12? No, that's, that's not the point. We don't say that about Peter. There's a different reason why Luke is including this. And I, I think he does this because he wants us to see, not that he's a good sleeper, but that he has a deep faith in God and who God is and what God has done and what God is capable of of doing. Peter has a deep faith in God because Peter believes that God is all-powerful. Now, if God wants to rescue Peter from the situation, no matter how hopeless it looks with all these guards and being in prison and what's impending tomorrow, it, it doesn't really matter. If God wants to rescue Peter, Peter is going to be rescued. Like, Peter truly believes that. If God wants to rescue Peter, Peter will be rescued. 
This makes me think back to a, another biblical story that, that Peter would have been familiar with um, and that it, we often use to talk about someone who has strong faith in God. And that's the story of Abraham back, back in Genesis. And if you're not familiar with the story, you can go back and read it on your own time. But the basic idea is that, that God approaches this guy named Abraham and he's old in age and his wife is old. And this angel says, hey, you are going to have a child. And they just think it's, it's pretty comical because they're both old. How is this going to be possible that we're going to have a child? And, and this angel says, no, no, no. God is going to bless all the nations through this child. And you're going to have as many kids as the sand on the seashore or the, the stars in the sky. So Abraham receives this promise. And lo and behold, his son Isaac is born. So here's this promise that God had made to Abraham. And then one day, God just strolls up to, to Abraham and he says... I want you to sacrifice your son. Now, if you believed that, that Isaac was the promise, like why would you even attempt to be able to do that? But Abraham just does it anyways. He, he loads up the donkey and he takes his son Isaac and he goes to this hilltop where God had told him to sacrifice Isaac. And even Isaac's questioning is like, hey dad, where's the sacrifice? It's like, don't worry about it, son. The Lord will provide and when Abraham says the Lord will provide, we're led to believe that, that he really believes that the Lord will actually provide in this instance because God had made this promise. So, of course, God is going to be faithful in this promise. And that's exactly what God does. Like, Abraham gets up there, ties Isaac down, and he raises this knife up in the air, sacrifice him on this altar. And then an angel appears and said, hey, look, there's a ram over there in the thicket. Why don't you use this ram instead of your son? And Abraham says, I think that's a good idea. Let's do that. And so God provides in that moment. God had promised Abraham a son. And in that moment, God provided so he maintains his son. You know, Hebrews goes into this a little bit further. Not only did, did uh, Abraham believe that, that God would provide something else in that moment, but he believed that even if he did have to drive that dagger into his son, that God would just raise him back from the dead because he knew that God was faithful with his promises, that God would be faithful. Now, if I was Abraham in that instance, like the next time I am tried and the next time God asks me to do something, the next time my circumstances are different, I would look back at their call and go, wow, that was a big deal. Let me, let me draw on that and remember God's faithfulness in that moment. And that's what Peter is doing here. He's drawing back on God's faithfulness so he can rest in a moment that is difficult. Here's the problem with us, and here's the problem with me sometimes, is, is I forget about what God has done last week. Do you ever do this? Like, we just forget how God has, has rescued us and, and shown up in the past. Uh, you know, forget about, like, four years ago. I can't remember last week. It's one of the reasons why I love to tell my testimony so much, because it reminds me of all the things that God has saved me from. And I encourage you to tell your own stories as much as you possibly can, so that you can retell that story of how God showed up when you were desperate, and he saved you and brought you into his family. Tell your story often. But we often forget. When we show up in, in trials and tribulations, sometimes we think, well, is God really going to show up this time? Is he, is he really going to do this? And we, we draw back and say, he's been faithful in the past. He'll be faithful in the present. See, Peter has this bank full of God's faithfulness that he can make withdrawals upon at any time. 
like how God provided for Abraham, like how God delivered Israel from slavery, and like how God delivered Peter himself from slavery through Jesus. So you got Abraham that can draw back and they go, no, 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 doesn't matter what I'm facing right now. Remember what God did to me with Isaac. Peter can look back and go, no, 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 it doesn't matter what I'm facing today, even if I'm in the prison cell, no matter what comes tomorrow, because God has been faithful to me in the past. And we can do the same thing. We look back on our past and remember God's faithfulness to help us to be faithful in that time. But there's also a second part of this. Not only does Peter believe that God is all-powerful, and that if God wants to rescue Peter, that, that God will rescue Peter, that I believe that Peter believes like Paul did. You remember what Paul wrote, that to live as Christ and to die as gain. That means that we have so many promises for what comes after this life, that even if it was death, that Peter could say, you know what, that is gain as well. God could rescue me, which would be gain, or I could die and that would be gain as well because the promises that have been offered me are so much greater than what this life can actually get me. And about 20 years later, following this scene, and if you don't know this story, I just let the cat out of the bag that, hey, Peter does get rescued, he doesn't die, right? But 20 years after, Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, he said, according to this great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation and ready to be revealed in the last time. I love that about Peter, that that he believes that this faith and what is coming to him, that it is so valuable and it's imperishable, undefiled and unfading, and it is kept that no matter what happens, no matter what circumstances around, no matter how he might die, this is the promise he has for the life that is to come. Peter could just flip a coin in this instance, sitting in the cell and say, if it's heads, I win. If it's tails, I win. That's the faith he has in God in this moment. Think about this for a moment. Like, when was the last time that you lost sleep over something? What is it that keeps you up at night? That, that if you're thinking about it, it's on your mind, that you're restless and you're anxious and you can't sleep? Or maybe you're, you're like me, that if I get woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning, my mind just starts going and then I can't fall back to sleep? What is it that keeps you up at night? In preparation for the sermon, I asked this question to a few people. And one of them was my, my hairstylist, and she gave me permission to tell this story, not that it would really matter, because I don't think any of you know my hairstylist in Madison anyways, but I won't even say her name. But I just asked her, I said, when was the last time you lost sleep? And she said, honestly, it was last night. And I'm like, can I ask a little bit more about that? And, and she shared the story, and it really doesn't even seem like a big deal, maybe unless you're in her shoes, but she was taking this finance class with her boyfriend, and they were kind of exploring whether they were going to get married or not, and... They were about two-thirds of the way through, and um, they didn't love it, um, but her boyfriend hated it. Like, he just wanted to quit, and she had something inside of her that made her feel guilty or bad, like if she quit this, but it was causing kind of this relational turmoil in, in the relationship, and she's like, man, I feel like I should quit, but I don't really know, and if I do have to quit, like, is this the guy I should marry? And she's just worried about this, and she's struggling with this, and it's keeping her up late at night. I mean, it doesn't seem like a big deal compared to sitting in a prison cell with your execution coming up the next day, right? But those are some of the same kind of trials and challenges that we often get in our lives that are very similar. 
that cause us to be anxious, that keep us up late at night. So whatever it is that keeps you up at night, I, I would almost guarantee you that there's some kind of hidden idol in your life that is making you put far too much value in that than you really should. I know these guys well enough to know that I, they probably talk about idols a lot, and that's just the fact that you're, you're taking your worship of God and your, um, uh, your security in God and you're putting it in something else and thinking this thing right here can offer me what God can offer me. And of course we know that that, that can happen and that could be something as, as the approval of man or the fear of failure or maybe it's the love of money or as, as something else for you. But whatever it is, there's something in your heart that says, if I can get this, then perhaps that I could be fulfilled and I would be okay. But here's how the Bible speaks to this. This is the gospel answer. God is in control. Even when you're not in control of your circumstances, God is in control. God is good. Even when your circumstances are not good, God is still good. And you are his child. Your eternity is secured in him, and nothing can take that away. Even if tomorrow goes all wrong, no matter what trials come before us, God is still God, and you are his. That's some good assurance for us. That's good for us to remember when we're anxious about things. And if you ever have those sleepless nights, wake up in the morning and just check your heart and go, go to God and say, God, what do I have in my life right now that is, is causing me to be anxious, or maybe I shouldn't be anxious? So Peter has this faith in God that is causing him to rest, even when his circumstances are, are crazy. But it's one thing to have faith. It's another thing to put that faith into action. Look at verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Earnest prayer was made for him by the church. And here's the scenario. It's not like you know, they can just show up and worship in church and everything is, is hunky-dory in, in this first century. Like, they were in danger. Like, James has just been killed. The king is wreaking havoc on the church and wanting to destroy people. So this church is hidden behind locked doors. We're gonna, we see that a little bit later on. Unfortunately, I don't have time to cover the whole passage. But Peter does get out, and he goes to these doors, and they're locked, and he can't even get in. They're, they're hiding out. They're, they're afraid and what do they do when, when they're there? It says that they earnestly prayed. Now, to put this in context a little bit, because it doesn't say that they prayed for James. The Bible doesn't say that they prayed for James, but it probably makes sense that they prayed for James, right? They prayed for James, and he doesn't get out. He's put to death. You know, they look at it and say, well, we prayed for James, and he died anyways, and, and now here's Peter about to do the same thing. Why should we even pray for Peter? But what does the passage say? They earnestly prayed for him. Not just that they prayed, they earnestly prayed for him. This is kind of like the pawing at the ground, like pounding God and pleading with God. They earnestly prayed for Peter, even though they didn't get the same results from James. But here's the other interesting thing about that is that they don't even believe that God is really going to answer that prayer. When he gets there, the gates are locked, and Rhoda the servant comes to get the door, and here's this Peter. She's so excited, she forgets to open the door that's locked. So she runs to tell everybody else, and all these other disciples who are in hiding, she says, hey, Peter's at the door. And they said, no, 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 it's not possible. You know, we know Peter. He, he's in jail, and he's, he's on tight guard. Like, there's no way it's Peter. If it is Peter, it's, it's a spirit, and he's already dead. 
So they earnestly pray, even though James was killed, and even though they don't even believe that God is really going to answer their prayer. But why do they do that? Because they're being faithful. They're taking that faith in God, and they know that God is a God who could rescue Peter if he wants to rescue Peter. They know that he is all-powerful, and he's capable of being able to do that. They don't believe that he's probably going to do that, but they know that he actually can, and they're being faithful by still earnestly praying for Peter to be released. Do you know why we pray? We pray because we have a God who created the heavens and the earth with his mere words. We have a God who sustains and holds all things together, and we have a God who can literally move mountains if he so chooses. And this God we call Father who loves us and gives good gifts to his children. So why not earnestly pray for the things we desire? Church, I can say with all confidence that probably the biggest church or the biggest problem with the Western church is our lack of faith. And this is most evident by the way we pray. Or I could say by our, our lack of prayer. I hope that churches in our Forest Lake District kind of buck this trend and we're different. But if we're going to see lives changed and our cities transformed by the gospel, then prayer has to be at the center of this movement. All right, this is where I talk about church multiplication for a moment. I can fit this in. Like, if we're going to see other church planters come into River City Church, or we're going to see other churches plant that faithfully uh, preach the gospel in other parts of our city in places that don't have faithful gospel preaching churches, then we need to lead that by prayer. It has to be at the center of what we actually do. Do you know that Jesus told his disciples, this is before he even goes away, when he's like, hey, we're going to reach the ends of the earth with this gospel. We're going to do this. But what he tells them, he says, open your eyes. Because the fields are ripe for the harvest. The disciples have just spent all this time with Jesus, but yet they're still missing something. They're still missing that the fields are ripe for the harvest. That there's still people there that God and the Holy Spirit coming in could transform their heart and draw them near to themselves. The, the, the fields are ripe for the harvest. I don't know what your neighborhood looks like, and I, I don't know exactly the, the culture of Dubuque, but I will say like in Madison, we are very far from the gospel, and it, it just make, gives me hopelessness sometimes when I look out at, at the culture around me, or I look at my neighbors and, and the sin that they're trapped in, and I think, why even bother? But Jesus says, open our eyes, because the fields are ripe for the harvest. And then he says, to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he sends workers out into the field. If we're going to see our cities transformed, it's going to begin with prayer, and it's going to be praying to the Lord of the harvest, send workers out of the field, because the fields are ripe for the harvest. That's a good thing to pray towards. Open our eyes and pray. Okay, here's where I want to end this morning. When I look at this entire chapter, the verse that... The, stands out the most to me, the one that I would underline and highlight. I don't know if you do that in your own Bibles. I do that. I, I got to keep changing my Bibles because pretty soon the whole thing is highlighted and underlined. So I got to start over with things that are important to me in that season of life. So underline and highlight verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. The word of God increased and multiplied. And of course, you know, I'm a church multiplication director, so of course they're going to land. It's got multiplied in the actual verse. But this is why this is so important. 
if anything is going to increase the church's faith in this chapter, it's this right here. You got James executed, Peter arrested, the church is on the run, but then God shows up and does what God does. Herod has this idea of taking out the leader of the church and ending this Jesus thing, but God has other plans. And I love that if you follow through this story, like Peter gets out of these chains, like they just drop. And I love that we, we sang about these chains being dropped in our lives from sin as well. And these chains drop, and then these doors open, and then door after door opens so they can get out of this prison. And then he's like set free. There's nothing that's going to stop him, right? Well, until he gets to the church and the doors are locked and he can't get in and Rhoda doesn't open the door for him, the church doesn't believe he's actually there. That just shows like the picture of what God can do compared to what man can do because God can literally just drop, drop the chains and open doors for us and the man is like, well, it's not really Peter. I love that contrast. But right at the very end, we see even more of a contrast in what man's evil can do compared to what God can do for us. This chapter begins with Herod with all the power, and he's wreaking havoc against the church and seemingly on the doorstep of victory. But in a few verses, we see Herod struck down. And in fact, the same word that Luke uses here for strike down is the same word that the angel uses to strike Peter to wake him up. Only Herod isn't woke up, right? He's put to sleep. And Peter, who is in prison and in chains, is set free, and the gospel increases and multiplies. And then finally, I want to bring us back to the gospel. I don't want to end with just having faith like Peter or just being faithful like the church. All those, those are really good things to strive towards. We always want to bring it back to the gospel. This isn't a pull your bootstraps out kind of faith. This is, this is bringing you back to Jesus and ending with Jesus. I talked to both Christians and non-Christians in my preparation for this morning, and one of the comments I got is, it's okay for us to be anxious because even Jesus was anxious. And of course, the... Um, the place in the Bible they're talking about is the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is about to be arrested and go through everything that he's about to have happen to him. And he, he goes into the garden and he takes three guys with him, three guys that we've talked about a lot already. And he tells them to pray. And then he goes off by himself and he, and he gets down and he, and he pleads with God. And he's like, if there's any way that you can take this cup from me, please, please do that. And it says that he sweated drops of blood in the garden. Now, the, the kind of argument against this is like of Jesus being anxious is, is one of them is like Jesus doesn't seem to be practicing what he preaches because didn't Jesus tell his disciples like, hey, it doesn't matter if you're, you're persecuted, arrest, arrested, martyred, whatever it is, like blessed are you when you're persecuted. Said that back in Matthew 5, right? So why isn't Jesus practicing what he's preaching here? If we're blessed when we're persecuted... Why is Jesus in so much agony that he's sweating drops of blood in the garden? It's not because he's about to be arrested, abandoned, beaten, flogged, mocked, and crucified. Those are all horrible things and stuff I'd be pretty anxious about. It's not what Jesus is worried about here. Jesus is anxious because he's about to take on the wrath of God. When he talks about, take this cup from me, the cup is always used for the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is God's righteous anger 
Um, it sounds really bad, but it's this righteousness of like this injustice that actually takes place in our world that he's saying, this sin and evil has to be dealt with and I'm going to pour out my wrath upon it. But instead of pouring it out on the people that deserve it, Jesus takes that on for us. All of God's wrath is poured out on Jesus on the cross so that we don't have to face that. That is such good news for us. Such good news that we don't have to face that, that same thing that Jesus is in so much agony over and sweating drops of blood that we don't have to face the thing that Jesus is worried about because Jesus took that on for us. That is a big deal, and that's why Jesus is in agony in the garden, and that's why he cannot rest. In the gospel, Jesus is in unrest so that we might rest. That's a substitution here. Jesus takes on that unrest so that we can rest, so that we can have peace, so that we don't have to sweat drops of blood, so that we don't have to sit in a prison cell and and be fearful about what's to come. That's why when Stephen gets stoned earlier in the scripture, he doesn't seem fearful. He just opens his eyes and looks up at the sky. We see Peter that's about to be... uh, executed the next day, and, and he's sleeping like a baby. And that's why we look through church history. We see martyrs over and over again that are happy to go to their death for the sake of the gospel. Jesus takes on, on our unrest so that we might rest. And church, this is why when the jar is being shaken, when we are in difficult times and things are not peaceful, they're not calm, Things are going crazy. The world is caving in on our heads. This is why we can have peace. Because we have a Savior who has taken on the worst for us so that we might, in turn, receive everything. And when we're in a season like we just went through, that's when our lights should shine the brightest because we have deep faith in what God has already done for us through Jesus on the cross. We know who God is, what he has done, and what he is capable of doing. There's this worship song called Do It Again that is a little bit controversial, and I've had a debate with um, a former pastor of mine that thought we should never sing it because there's a line in question is, you haven't failed me yet. And in his mind, which I can completely understand where he's coming from, is like, we shouldn't even be thinking about like God not failing us. Like He hasn't failed us yet. He's never going to fail us. Like we're, we're, This isn't correct theologically. And, and I get that portion, except for when you put yourself in the writer's shoes, you can understand it a little bit more. Because there's been many times in my own life where I've thought, is this the time God fails me? Is this the time he doesn't show up? Is this the time he's going to abandon me? Is this the time when all of my circumstances are going to cave in on me and crush me? And when we look back on that, we can sing that. He hasn't failed me yet because he has showed up every single time. And even when we might have doubt in that moment, we can stand fast that he will show up and he won't fail us because God is faithful towards us. I was talking to this guy who's a professor at Wheaton at this conference recently, and uh, he goes to China to talk to these pastors in the Chinese underground church. And this one time he was supposed to preach at this church and the pastor came up to him the night before and said, hey, I can't have you preach, so I'm going to preach because we've heard that there might be a raid. And uh, he's like, well, like, okay, so there's going to be a raid. Let me preach. He's like, no, no, no. If there's a raid, you're going to go to prison and I can't have you go to prison. 
And he's thinking to himself, like, well, if I don't preach and you preach, then you're going to go to prison. Like, that doesn't rest well with my soul for you, you to go to prison instead of me. And he said, no, no, no. Like, Pastor, you need to understand, this guy was in his 60s, and he had to explain to him that he had already been in prison for 20 years of his life for preaching the gospel, more than 20 years of his life. So over one-third of his life had been spent in prison for faithfully preaching the gospel. And he told me, he said, every time I go to prison, the church prays even harder. And when I get out, the church is twice the size of when I came in. That is faith. And that is putting your faith in action. That is faithfulness. River City, no matter what you may be facing right now, let us press into an all-powerful, yet immensely loving God. Let's deepen our faith because we have a God who is faithful, who shows up for us over and over and over again. And let us allow the world to see our joy and faithfulness, especially when our jar is being shaken. Let's pray. God, we come before you this morning and we confess that we often don't express our faith the way we should. I know just personally, like my faith in you could grow so much more. So God, I ask that you speak to us. I pray that if we are sitting in here this morning and, and we are in that season where the world seems to be caving down on our heads, that, that you would expand our faith. You would grow us. You would remind us of your faithfulness. That you would show us all the way you have shown up and you would remind us even of Christ going to the gospel or going to the cross for us because even in the gospel we have enough. So expand our faith, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.